Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is Joe Healy. And we are here to wrap up the 2021 baseball season. Mississippi State won the College World Series last week, I guess when you're listening to this. And the Bulldogs win their first national title in program history beating Vanderbilt in three games in the College World Series Finals. We'll get into that. Some parting thoughts on the 2021 season, especially the 2021 College World Series, uh, and look ahead into uh, Summer Ball, which is already in, in full swing around the country. So got a lot to talk about here on today's Baseball America College podcast, which is presented by Rapsodo. Repsoto has become the industry standard in player performance data. Coaches use Repsoto data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. The Repsoto National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts. You can check out the Repsoto National Player Database at repsoto.com slash national database. All right, Joe, we're back from Omaha. It was, uh, it was two weeks out there, two weeks full of baseball and plenty more drama than we had <laughs> we had anticipated or signed up for, frankly. Uh, but it, it ends with Mississippi State dogpiling. And uh, the the Bulldogs are, are the 2021 national champions, national champs for, for the first time in the program's proud history. One more time for everybody. Ready or not, Omaha, Nebraska. I thought you were going to drop a on Nebraska. White. Oh, well, that, I mean, that too, that was, that was pervasive, pervasive as well. Uh, we, we talked about not, not quite as pervasive was counting crows, um, but I get it. It's not hot. It's not up tempo. I, well, that I was, it. you were just singing bowling for soup, not, not, not the counting crows. Uh, Correct. Song. Yes. That was the first one was. Uh, that's, that's how not pervasive it was, is that you didn't even bother, bother with it. <laughs> yeah. Parenthetically ready or not. And then Omaha, Nebraska, okay. the name of the song okay. by uh, bowling for soup. Um, but yeah, we, we heard that one quite a bit. Uh, Counting Crows, Omaha, much less. Um, heard a couple of times before the games, but not all that often. Um, no OAR with this town. That's okay. You, you made the point more of a ESPN TV deal versus being played in the stadium. I'm sorry, what was the question? I'm, I'm on a tangent now. <laughs> uh, just talking about how Mississippi State was in uh, yes. fact ready for Omaha. Uh, yes, they were. Yes. And Omaha was ready for them. It felt like, like uh, there was a lot of talk early in the tournament. If Mississippi state, I mean, the Mississippi state fans turned out in huge numbers from the jump. Let me be clear, but there was a lot of talk about, you know, if, if Mississippi state gets the finals, this place is going to turn into, you know, Starkville in the Midwest and, and boy, did it ever, you know, I did a couple radio hits. I believe right Starkville North is the nomenclature yeah. that, that has been adopted right down to the, uh, I'm sure you saw the, 
the picture that has been making its way around social media that there's a, I guess, a, a, some restaurant somewhere around the stadium that does a jello shot challenge. And the record was 800 and some odd uh, jello shots taken, I assume purchased. Um, I assume that's how they're counting. Um, and by the 2019 Arkansas contingent, and I think Mississippi State clearly more than doubled it. They might have come close to tripling it. I think it was 2,200 and something jello shots purchased. Every other school on the list had purchased, I think, less than 200. So um, they clearly had turned out for that. Uh, but it was, I mean, it was conservatively, you know, and a lot of the, the neutral fans, of which there are many, it should be said, you know, Omaha, the College World Series is a lot of locals and just neutral fans who are just there because it's a, it's a, it's a, a spectacle. But I mean, a lot of those fans were rooting for Mississippi State as well because, you know, fair or not, Vanderbilt has been painted a a little bit of as a as a villain, and also people understand Mississippi State had never won the thing. So, I think there are a couple things going for it that even made some neutral fans root for the Bulldogs. But it, it felt like during the finals, it was conservatively ninety percent maroon and white. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, that's about right, and you know, I, I'm sure. On TV, there was also a lot of, uh, yeah, I, there, around the country, I should say, watching on TV, I'm sure there were a lot of, of neutral observers, uh, you know, pulling for that Mississippi State team, which which felt like an underdog team, didn't play like it a lot of the year. But, it, you know, if you ask Chris Lamonis to describe the, the Bulldogs this year, like gritty and resilient were the first two words out of his mouth. And as cliche as that might be sometimes it also wasn't far from the truth. Uh, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was pretty spot on when, when it came to this Mississippi state team and, and that endears the, the team to, uh, to folks as well. So when they, uh, when they won the title, it was, uh, it's definitely a raucous atmosphere in the stadium. You had all kinds of like Mississippi state celebrities too. Ron Polk was in the house, Jonathan Papelbon, uh, Palmero and uh, Dak Prescott all were there. Don't know where Will Clark was. Um, have not have not seen. I'm sure it got reported where Will Clark was watching from. But uh, it was uh, it was a very maroon and white heavy heavy presence in Omaha. And you know, it also the nature of the two games that Mississippi State won in the finals really lent itself to uh, their fans making themselves known. I mean, there may have been more neutrals or, or more fans pulling for Vanderbilt at some point, but uh, you know, when it's nine, nothing in game three of the the finals, it, it becomes a little harder to, uh, to really feel like there there's some sort of tension in the stadium. Yeah, it was, the, it was a, basically the last two games were 18 innings of a coronation really. And I, I've seen it mentioned in a couple of stories um and so you know this is going to sound convenient for me to say because now we know the result but in game three when rowdy jordan hit a first pitch single just like smacked a single into right field i was like well this is over and like that's a that's like a little it's a bold call hyperbolic and 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 we we do this jokey thing in the press box you know where somebody throws a strike and we're like well game's over but some of us are not joking (laughs) (laughs) but that i mean that really did feel a little bit symbolic to me you know, that like they came out and just immediately clearly had a lot of energy and, and a lot of, you know, a lot of, um, you know, they were just clearly they were they were a team on a mission. And that, that only counts for so much. I get it. But it, that did feel a little bit a little bit symbolic that, that they ended up doing that. And it strikes me that, you know, you mentioned that the team being called gritty and, and whatever other adjectives you want to use that are in that neighborhood. 
I think that's I think that's right because it strikes me that Mississippi State, you know, in the end, Will Bednar was the best pitcher throwing in the College World Series with what he did. So that ended up being true. But coming into the series, you would not have said they had the best rotation. And even that's still a debate because as good as Bednar was, McLeod was equally as poor, like on the other end of the spectrum. Like he really struggled. I think he got six total outs in his two starts. Um, so, it, you know, you wouldn't have said they had the best starting rotation. You might have said they actually, you certainly would have said they had the best reliever of Landon Sims. But what you got past Sims was a little more of a question. They don't, they didn't have the most physical offense. Um, you know, Tanner Allen's in the discussion of best individual offensive players, but you know, when you get past that, like there was a question to be asked about how many of, if you'd made a all CWS team before this, before the tournament started, how many Mississippi state position players would have been on it. But yet I think they proved as much as anything else that, that what we've known all year, which is they find ways to win. They find a lot of different ways to beat you. We've beaten that drum a lot this year, but I don't think there was any better encapsulation of it than the way they did it the way they did it in Omaha and because every other team's weaknesses were really put on front street when you, when you get right down to it, where, you know, the Texas offense with strikeouts, you know, they, they just got kind of exposed in a couple of games, notably against Will Bednar to start the CWS, you know, and uh, you know, Arizona wasn't able to kind of stop the bleeding once they got behind Stanford in the elimination game, Stanford's pitching ended up being as thin as we thought it was going to be right up to the CWS finals with Vanderbilt, where it's like, offensively with Vanderbilt, when the other team is pitching well, do they just have enough guys in that lineup? This was not like a classically good Vanderbilt lineup. They had some good pieces, but a lot of those guys were struggling at the end. And that was ended up being a weakness that ended up tripping them up. And with Mississippi State, they just, you didn't see that kind of stuff. Like the, the bullpen, and it wasn't just Sims, the bullpen pitched pretty well. Now there were games where they had to use seven or eight relievers, which kind of gave it the impression they were struggling to find somebody that was effective. But you know, I went back and looked at it and the bullpen on balance was, was pretty good. Obviously Sims was, was the, the biggest reason for that, but the offense got production from a lot of different guys. You know, it wasn't one guy carrying the, the load there and Bednar was excellent. So they had a lot of things go right for them. And I think, so I think that's right. I mean, it was, a, it's a gritty team that did a lot of things really well, even if maybe they didn't do anything great. And that was enough to win a national title. Yeah. And you know, you never know how, you know, what is going to get highlighted in a in a world series like is it going to be for, for an individual team you don't know is it going to be their starting pitching or their relief pitching you know what, what's going to come to shine but in this case the the thing that you know Vanderbilt had kind of picked out about Mississippi State that was going to be difficult for them to to handle was or at least this is what got talked about a lot coming into the finals from the from Vanderbilt was that Mississippi State just didn't strike out much and you saw it in those in those finals just at bat after at bat they kept fighting they kept grinding and eventually they uh they broke through and they did something game one didn't really go their way obviously at all um but even offensively they never really got much going against lighter they you know after the first inning when they gave up seven runs they played much better. It was a one-to-one ball game, I think, for the rest for the the next eight innings. But you know, the, over the next two days, Mississippi State really just put together at bat after at bat, and um, they, they they threw up a, a ton of hits. And in game two, particularly, they worked a ton of walks and just really made life difficult for 
anyone Vanderbilt threw out there from Kamar Rocker on down. It's such a good point because, you know, that, that was one of the, I think the big differences where sometimes when you're in the middle of a game, you can lose the forest because you're focused on the trees. And so this was something that really didn't sink in for me until after game three had ended that every Mississippi state at bat, every, every turn at bat, I should say. So the individual half innings lasted forever. And even in game two, they were really kind of fighting. They didn't get much going, but like, you know, felt like they were doing a good job of at least, you know, making, making lighter work a little bit. And lighter kind of admitted it that, you know, they, they, they really kind of made me work with the exception of a couple innings when he, when he was cruising. And especially in game three, those Vanderbilt half innings were lightning quick. They made a couple things happen against Bednar in the first couple of innings. Works, I mean, really what it was was they worked some walks against Bednar. They, they walked three times. Right. Three of the first five batters walked, and then otherwise. You know, Bednar got a big double play. You know, first and second one out in the first inning of game three. He gets out of it with the double play, and it really was rolling downhill at that point for Bednar in Mississippi State. But the half innings after that were just lightning quick for Vanderbilt. There were a lot – even if they didn't end in strikeouts, there were a lot of just really quick outs – and some of that is dictated by the pitcher. I get it, but I think that was a really stark difference between the two teams. Yeah, I, I think that's fair, and um, you know, it, it, it just winds up being a, uh, a a perfect final two games in, in so many ways for for Mississippi State. Uh, they nearly throw a no hitter in Game Three, which was remarkable on so many levels. Just the way Bednar was able to pitch and. Then Sims coming in out of the bullpen and, and keeping it going for a little while. And, and it, the, it wasn't a no hitter, but they wound up throwing a one hitter in the decisive game of the college world series. I mean, that's, that's remarkable what they were able to accomplish. And so Bednar is named most outstanding player, very deservedly. So he had a series that goes down as one of the better ones for a pitcher, certainly in recent history. I mean, it wasn't Steve Arlen, but it was <laughs> who is anymore. And, you know, Bednar really came, has come on over the last month plus, I guess. It was still a little up and down at times. He had a very poor start in Hoover, for instance, and Notre Dame got to him some in super regionals, but he's he's been pitching really well down the stretch and, and you're going to hear his name very early in in the draft in a couple weeks like i don't know top 20 probably at least and you know that that's he he had been in the mix as a top two rounder pretty much all year long but what he what he did here especially in omaha is is really going to have have helped him move up draft boards and it's easy to see what's good about him from a prospect standpoint. I mean, he throws really hard. He commands the ball well. And, um, you know, when, when he has his off-speed stuff working the way he, he did so many times in the postseason, I mean, it, it's close to unhittable stuff. And uh, that's, uh, that's what you saw in game three. He, he stepped out on the biggest stage possible, facing Kamar Rocker on short rest, and he, he got the job done in a huge way. Yeah, it reminded me, I wrote in my story about Bednar after that game, it reminded me a little bit of Andrew Beckwith of Coastal Carolina because it was a similar type of situation. I'm sure you remember that that run well, Teddy. Um, but, you know, it was Beckwith threw two complete games early in 
the CWS relatively early in the CWS and then was helped a little bit by the fact that that final got pushed to, to a Thursday afternoon because it gave him like theoretically that extra day of rest and he comes back and throws five and two thirds against Arizona to help clinch a national title for, for Coastal. So it, there have been more recent pitchers when most outstanding player, Kamar Rocker, for example, in 2019, Alex Fido in 2017. But I think Beckwith was the closest comp just in terms of two really, really good outings to start on more or less normal rest, let's call it. And then a, a third start where you kind of wonder what can we reasonably expect that, and it actually ends up going way better than I think most people would have, would have assumed it would go going into it. Yeah. I mean, going into that game, I was thinking, well, if they can, like Sims is stretched out enough that you can hope for four. So now you're just trying to like, get five how do you get five can bednar give you five or you're gonna have to bridge to sims and well it wound up that bednar gave you six hitless innings and then you went to sims uh not necessarily because you know bednar said he was he felt gassed at the end understandably um but you you also probably if he'd been on certainly if he'd been on more normal rest or if the game had been closer, I, I wonder if they would have even said like, yeah, let's, let's go to Sims this fast or, or if they would have tried to pull back and, and just keep Sims for two innings, but they didn't have to make that decision. It, it wound up being, being pretty easy for them to, uh, to go to the bullpen there and, and get Sims and who had it pitched in the finals. It, it, it set up incredibly well for Mississippi state. And, you know, at the end, they dogpile. This is a, a program first, and not just a program first, it's a school first. The school had never won a national championship in a team sport before. Uh, and this is the, the crown jewel at Mississippi State in so many ways. They really care about football down there, but this is this is really the sport in, in a lot of ways. And so for, for them to get it done, uh, and, and to get it done in, uh, in the fashion they did just a, uh, you know, the, the yeah, it went to, to game three cause they lost game one of the finals, but the, those two finals games were not close. I, I think that probably just let, let their fans, you know, just have to live a little less with, uh, with the worry of, well, how, how is this going to go wrong or, or, or what's going to go wrong here? Uh, probably enjoy the moment. A little bit more and so now we have another one of college baseball's premier programs going out and, and winning the national championship for the, for the for the first time we've had a lot of that over the last decade arizona or not arizona florida gets it done in 2017 uh, vanderbilt which doesn't have the history of uh of a mississippi state or even a florida but certainly the the program has become one of the the best in, in the sport. They get it done in 2014. UCLA kind of in a similar situation in 2013 and, and Virginia in 2015. And it was uh, it was good to see another first-time winner, especially a first-time winner that that cares about it as much as, as Mississippi State does. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a type of deal where they care enough and there's enough history there that if they had lost in the finals – a lot of stories would get written about those ghosts of the past. And then Chris Limonis got asked in the, that the press conferences leading up to the finals about whether or not they feel a sense of responsibility to get this done, given 
some of the close calls Mississippi State has had for the years. And, you know, you know, of course, he answered that the way you would expect him to answer it, which is that they're not too worried about it. And it's also the right answer, right? They can't control that. So, but, um, but the reason that comes up is because there is that kind of history, whether you talk about, I mean, this is their third straight Omaha trip and the 2018 team started off 2-0 and and they started to dream on that a little bit. Um, you know, that, that was a good run there. They had, you know, the, the most famous one, of course, is 1985. That was the Palmero, Will Clark, Jeff Brantley team um, that didn't win a national title. And in hindsight, you know, you look at that talent and, and wonder how that could be. They got, went their back-to-back years in 97 and 98. They had a 1989 team that won the SEC that didn't even get to the College World Series. So there have been teams that, that they've kind of dreamed of, of this kind of thing happening that just didn't quite, didn't quite get there. So it is cool that, that this fan base, this program that has done everything you could ever ask a program to do to prove that they're all in on baseball, uh, to be rewarded for that. Um, so that is cool. And it's a, it's a fan base that, that supports their team, uh, you know, uh, just li- like very few teams do in college baseball. So um, I'm always going to um, enjoy seeing a fan base that's that engaged, enjoy a moment like this. So a lo- long time coming from Mississippi State. So happy for the program. You know, guys like you mentioned, Ron Polk, guys like him who put so much into a program, you know, just to have it kind of fall short time and again. So he had to be, even though I'm sure there was, there was a part of him that also just wishes, you know, it, it had been one of his years and that he was out there you know, with his team in the dog pile and all that kind of stuff. I mean, at the same time, though, he has to be incredibly proud considering how much groundwork that he and his various staffs of the years laid there uh, to get to this point. I mean, a case reasonably could have been made a week ago that Mississippi State was the best program without a national championship. I probably still would have said Florida State. They've been to Omaha 23 times. You might have heard they don't have a national title to show for it. Uh, but Mississippi State would have, yeah, I mean, they're, they're right there. I mean, w- when you consider what the program has meant to the sport, uh, the way that it gets supported, and how much, you know, like you said, how much they've invested in it, like they, uh, they certainly would have been right there near the top of the list. And, and now they, uh, they don't have to wear, wear that, that anymore. They, they now can proudly display their, their national championship trophy. In 2019, when the new dude opened, uh, and I went down there, I asked Chris Limonis, you know, he wasn't, because he got hired so late, he really wasn't part of the the process in any significant way in terms of construction or design. Uh, he threw in a couple late thoughts, mostly. Uh, I, I think his, his biggest one was that there's a space in the team space where they honor the graduates of the program, like the ones that got degrees and like that, that's one of the, the big things that he added. So again, by the time he got there, the, the stadium was fully under like halfway under construction, if not further. Uh, so he wasn't able to, to do anything. So I, I said, well, is there anything that this place still needs? He said, you know, just a national championship sticker would look great out there on the outfield wall. And they got one of those now. So they've, uh, they've got everything you could want as a program, which is, uh, I mean, it, the, the work that they've put in in, at an administrative and program level over the last five decades, since they made their first college world series to get to this point is remarkable to build a national championship quality program in Starkville, Mississippi was not easy, uh, but they did it 
and uh now they they have they can enjoy the the fruits of of their labor which is uh you know th- this is what what they all play for and so hopefully everyone there is uh is able to to enjoy this moment uh and celebrate it going forward yeah i'm, I'm with you on the um you know being in the conversation of best programs to not have a national title florida state um probably probably you're right probably chief among them but just kind of running down the list. You and I actually did this the other day, but just for the listener, the, the list of, of teams that have been in Omaha bunch. And the list is actually pretty short. If you can, if you really want to narrow it down to programs who you would consider, you know, historical powers that have not cashed in on a national title yet. Um, Florida state chief among them, Clemson, 12 trips to the CWS, no national titles. Um, they haven't been since 2010. They're actually kind of on a, a little bit of a drought now. Arkansas, of course, um, that's another one that fans are probably pretty familiar with obviously coming so close in 2018. Um, don't know what Northern Colorado is doing. They've been there 10 times. They haven't cashed in yet. Uh, but no, so they are in North Carolina. Sorry, I missed North Carolina. 11 appearances, uh, no national titles. Their best chance, of course, was that that run from, you know, they were there in six, seven, eight, and oh, nine and weren't able to. They made to. the finals twice. Right. So they, they were oh so close to getting it done. But those are the ones, Florida State, Clemson, North Carolina, Arkansas, are the the ones that, that we're looking at and some of the ones that are more you know uh, newcomers johnny come lately's you know tcu with the five appearances and louisville with the five appearances but they're obviously a a long way from getting into that uh, neighborhood in terms of the, the the teams that are beleaguered by not having won national titles so it's kind of an interesting little race there between uh, some really good programs that have, have been there a bunch and just haven't been able to get it done all right, so we're uh, we're going to take a quick break here, but then we're going to come back, put a bow on the College World Series and the 2021 season, and uh, get into some of uh, some future talk, uh, starting with Summer Bowl. So a lot still to get to, but first, check this out. All right, Joe, we uh, we talked about. Mississippi State winning the national championship, what it meant for that program historically. On the flip side, Vanderbilt loses. They were one win away from back-to-back national championships, which would have been their third since 2014. Would have, I mean, not that anyone needs Vanderbilt to, you know, win another national title to talk about them as being one of the premier programs in the sport right now. But uh, I mean, that that would have would have really made uh made for a a difficult case to to dispute instead they they lost twice and neither game was close they got blown out in game two and that maybe wasn't the biggest surprise the games in which rocker and lighter did not pitch this year were often challenging for vanderbilt they just got behind the eight ball early in that game and then never really got their bats going and and they just they they used a bunch of freshman pitchers who they wouldn't ordinarily be pitching in the college world series finals i i think um but that set them up what looked like pretty well for game three they had rocker going he was on slightly short rest he was on four days rest uh which is a little bit short for a college pitcher but you know nothing nothing terrible and pretty much their entire bullpen rested and ready. And it didn't matter. Mississippi State came out. They got to they got to rocker. And but the Vanderbilt offense 
just never showed up. They get, they had one hit. They had a chance in the first inning. You mentioned earlier, they, they got runners on first and second one out hit into a double play. And from there, Will Bednar was just totally locked in the rest of the way. And as a result, Vanderbilt leaves and kind of really disappointing the, the last two games, Tim Corbin talked at the, uh, at the end of the, the, after game three, he was asked if the team just was kind of spent at that point and not to make excuses. And, and this wasn't an excuse that was raised by, by Vanderbilt, but that was kind of a, a, an idea that, that was thrown out there and, and Corbin kind of agreed with that, you know, it, they, they just had used so much to get to that point that they didn't have enough left to get over the hump. I suppose, I suppose that's one potential explanation. Um, yeah, it, it just ultimately, I think, wasn't a complete enough team to when faced with a really complete team in Mississippi State uh, to, to overcome some of the, uh, the momentum that the Mississippi State was playing with and, and just the, the sheer ability of, of what the Bulldogs were bringing to the table. Yeah, I think it, it's just what happens when you yourself are not a complete team. And like you said, you come up against a complete team that isn't going to let your shortcomings go unpunished, basically. Because I, yeah, I think every, it, every free base Vanderbilt gave, every error, every walk, like they got punished in a big way by Mississippi State. Yeah, absolutely. It, it just felt like there was no – Mississippi State never let them come up for error at any point, which is a, a big-time credit to them. But it was kind of death by a thousand cuts for Vanderbilt. I mean, the defense was not good the last two games. And, and the defense hadn't been – I mean, they weren't an elite defense during the regular season, but they weren't terrible. But the last two games, they were very poor, honestly. Um, three errors in each of the last two games, and there could have been others. You know, some of it random stuff. You know, Carter Young gets a ball caught in the webbing of his glove, stuff like that. I mean, but but there was also some stuff that was just – it looked like a team that was kind of spent. Errors you make when you are kind of spent. You know, a one-hop base hit into right field that Isaiah Thomas – doesn't really get in front of and he kind of tries to olay it or maybe stop it with his bare hand for some reason and it just gets by him you know um and then his body language was kind of bad afterwards you know just kind of a an error that looks like an error you make when you're just kind of at the end of your rope and the offense was was like you mentioned was really bad the last two days I mean five hits over the course of the final two games of of the series five hits over 18 innings it's just obviously not going to get it done. And there were a lot of things that went into that, including the aforementioned Carter Young, who in post game, I saw it reported that, you know, Tim, I, mi- I guess I missed this at the time, or maybe it was something he said to someone on the side, but that Carter Young was battling some things and he's going to have to get off season surgery and that he might've only been 60%, you know, and, and it showed he did not have a good finals at, and certainly at the plate. So it was just one of those, one of those weekend or one of those, it wasn't a weekend, but one of those series where, Every single thing they did wrong, Mississippi State was right there to capitalize on it. And a lot of little things went wrong and it added up to the last two games, Vanderbilt just not being particularly competitive. And frankly, after the first inning on in game one, first inning on Monday, they weren't particularly competitive. So um, I then think, you know, Corbin summed it up pretty well at the end where, you know, it was they he admitted they they got outplayed, but also said that, yeah, we, you know, I think you you saw some of that wear and tear at, at the end of the season. It's uh, it's unfortunate that that's how it how it turned out for this Vanderbilt team. They had been so good for for so much of the season. They're going to be remembered for Rocker and Lighter, who are going to be 
top 10 picks uh, in a couple weeks and they'll, they'll go down as two of the highest uh, drafted teammates in, uh, in, in MLB draft history. Ultimately though, it's, it's going to be looked at, I guess, as a, a team without a title. And, and that's, that's the truth of it. But you know, th- this was a, a really good run in, in Vanderbilt history, this specific team getting to the finals is uh, remarkable still. Like, I don't, I don't care who you are. Uh, so that should be applauded as well. Uh, but the, the, it's going to be interesting, I guess, now to, to see Vanderbilt going forward without rocker and lighter. It was just two years that Jack lighter was at Vanderbilt. He wasn't even in the rotation in 2020 when the season ended. Uh, but th- this felt like a really real era of Vanderbilt baseball. And Kamar Rocker is going to go down as one of the great college baseball players. And now he'll be gone. And, and really, I think when we, the, the, that's what's going to be different next year is no Rocker. Um, not having Lighter there is, is significant as well. But not having Rocker, who was, uh, you know, just the, one of the best players in the country almost from the start, but certainly by the end of his freshman season, he had become one of the best players in the country. And it's, uh, it's going to be different. So Joe, you've started looking forward to forward a little bit with Vanderbilt next year. They're, they're going to have a rotation fronted probably by Christian little and Patrick Riley. They'll return a number of offensive players, including Carter Young at shortstop. And uh, he's going to be, talked about as, as one of the better players in college baseball and a high draft pick. And so they, they, they have pieces, obviously it's Vanderbilt. They're very talented, but it, it is also at the same time going to be something completely different. Yeah, no doubt about that. I, I think it's one of those deals where because lighter and rocker take up so much oxygen and understandably so that I think it's going to feel like more of a hard reset than it, than it might actually be. And that's still understanding that it is a pretty hard reset when you're, you're oh, you're going to lose the two best pitchers of college baseball? Oh, okay. But that being said, you know, I think that might serve to overstate, to, I'm sorry, to underestimate how much talent is still around. I kind of kept waiting for Christian Little this year to show, and it's important to draw the distinction of early enrollee, 17 years old. He was not Kamar Rocker in that regard. Also just the physicality of Kamar Rocker. There were a lot of things that were different, but I think people, and I will include myself in this group, kind of kept waiting for that breakout performance from Little, kind of in the same way as Rocker matured throughout his freshman year, really burst onto the scene. I'm not even talking about the no-hitter against Duke. I just mean as the season wrapped up in 2019, it was clear what he was becoming, and Little just never quite got there. The stuff was good, but I think there's a lot of confidence that moving forward, um, this guy's going to be a real dude, so there's that, and, and, and Patrick Riley showed some some good things. And I am certain that there will be some talented youngsters arriving on campus in Nashville in the fall who will certainly have something to say about that. But there are a couple of other guys I think are notable here. Um, you know, in terms of the draft, you know, you've got Isaiah Thomas, who supremely talented outfielder, who very toolsy, a lot of power, um, you know, kind of a strikeout problem. Isn't going to draw a lot of walks, but, but certainly had a lot of talent. You know, he's, he's probably a guy who's getting drafted to go. I mean, Dominic Keegan is in that in that mix, maybe catcher CJ Rodriguez, who, you know, they will tell you is a really important piece of the puzzle there. I mean, he took that job by the horns early in 2020 as a freshman and really ran with it and never gave it up. 
and is spoken of very highly um, from no less than, than Kamar Rocker. Kamar Rocker talking about Cedro Rodriguez is one of the only times that I've seen in person Rocker really light up talking about something when you, when you ask about CJ Rodriguez. So there's clearly a lot of um, a lot of goodwill about what he brings to the program. So there are some other pieces here too that are that are going to make Vanderbilt have to retool. Um, I think they're still going to be very much in the mix when it's all said and done. But but going into next year, I think you and I are going to are going to have to have a lot of conversations about what Vanderbilt will exactly be and where we place them in the pecking order going into next season. And I'm kind of excited about that aspect this year because we're going to be doing that with a lot of teams that frankly we didn't have to do that about last off season because they returned so much. So that'll be kind of fun in some way, but it, it does make our job a little bit harder. Yeah, absolutely. And among those returners, it should be mentioned Enrique Bradfield should be mentioned by name. I should have mentioned them before. Um, he is one of the most exciting players in the country, certainly the fastest and uh, game changing speed at the top of the lineup. They're going to be good. There's no doubt about that, that there's too much talent at Vanderbilt, but it's going to be different and, you know, we'll see where it takes them. Uh, definitely, like you said, excited, interested to see what, uh, what it's all about next year for, for the doors. Uh, Joe, the, the world series is over. It's been over. You've, you've had a chance to, to just reflect a little bit. Final thoughts from the, the 2021 college world series. A little bit. Um, I don't want to say I totally discounted Mississippi state chances to do this coming in to the, to the CWS, but you I heard him here. You heard it. Everyone, Joe did not believe in Mississippi state. <laughs> That's right. I, I, I don't know not... if they still need the motivation. The, the season's over, but if you want it, there's, there's some bulletin board. Yeah. Material. There's some bulletin board material, but, but I, you know, I did, I, I think I may have discounted them a little bit just because of, of what I talked about earlier, where it's like, what, what is this team really hanging its hat on? Right. And two things can be true. A phrase that I say a lot, obviously, and it's going to be like a, a drinking game on our podcast. Joe's, Joe's saying two things can be true, but I think it's true that that was the case. And also we found out, Oh, you know, Will Bednar is going to be the best pitcher here, you know, and, and, and we, we couldn't have necessarily pointed that out before the, the CWS, that would have been a bold prediction, but it, it turned out to be the case. And Oh, the, the never, and the part that I, that I'm frustrated with myself about is, is kind of underestimating the kind of intangible, never say die attitude the team has that you could very clearly see uh, coming into the, into the CWS. So I think I may have discounted that to too large a degree. And so a little bit kicking myself that I didn't, uh, I didn't maybe have a little bit more confidence in this team um, be, being the team to, to, to win it all. So that there's that. Um, I think that other than that, I think the big thing, and we talked about this in the last episode, one of the big things that I noticed about this is how many of these teams that were in this field, and most of which got eliminated fairly early, are teams that, hey, next year, that you could reasonably say, Hey, next year, they might be just as good, if not better. You know, when we talk about Stanford, for example, or maybe Texas, um, or, you know, you could make an argument maybe for Arizona, if they're able to hold a recruiting class together, that's a little tricky with a new head coach. I get it. So there's that Virginia's young talent's really good. They're veteran in some spots, but you know, Kyle Teal and Nate Savino and names I'm missing. I'm sure that I'm not coming up with off the top of my head, you know, Chris Newell, Chris Newell, there it is you know, that's a team that you could kind of squint and say, you know, like that, that team might be back here. So I think that's really exciting that it, uh, Tennessee was a name I, I didn't mention there. Um, we've talked about how theirs is a little complicated, but certainly the trajectory there is good. And so 
it feels like we got a little bit of a sneak peek almost of some of these programs that are on the upswing. And those are, that's no guarantee, right? I mean, history is littered with examples of teams. And I think I wrote this for one of these teams, I forget, but history is littered with teams where you, you make a CWS appearance and it's easy to look at it and say, well, this is probably the start of something big. And then it just doesn't pan out that way because to use Tim Corbin's words, winning national title is hard. You can't do it. You know, like he kind of said that facetiously, like you just can't do it. It's too hard, you know? So um, just getting back here is, is giving back to that spot is, is really, really hard too. So you can have a lot of things go right and still not get there. But with that being said, it did feel like we kind of got an early look at some of these teams that I think we're going to continue to come back to year after year, at least into the foreseeable future. Yeah. I'm all about Texas for next year. Uh, we'll have our never too early 2022 rankings out sometime relatively soonish. I'm not entirely sure yet. Uh, Texas is going to rank real good. Uh, spoiler alert. Not quite sure exactly where, but it's going to be real high. I I really like what the Horns have coming into next year. And you got to see a lot of the reasons for you know my excitement about Texas moving forward in Omaha. And so that, that was cool. I think it was also just, you know, it, it's worth noting again, last year, none of this happened. And this year there were attendance records set and yeah, the ratings weren't great for the finals for any number of reasons, but it was, it was just good to have a, a season back and then the college world series back. And yeah, it wasn't, smooth in a lot of ways and what happened with North Carolina state is unfortunate in a lot of ways, but to, uh, to just be able to go out and celebrate college baseball in Omaha again was, uh, was a really cool deal. Yeah, no doubt about that. I, I got asked on radio, um, last week, if, if the North Carolina state thing has, you know, overshadowed the rest of what was going on in Omaha. And I think in the immediate aftermath, the answer was yes. But I do think, you know, once the Wednesday, final, I, I don't think that was the case anymore. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, and the fact that it was the, the national title was won by a team like Mississippi State, an SEC club that a lot of people are familiar with. A lot of people know the history that they've had in college baseball and the fact that their fans, you know, really came out of the numbers they came out in, in Omaha. I think a lot of people took notice of that. So I think we were back on track by the time things wrapped up. So it was, I, I think that was good. Understanding still, of course, that like I've said a number of times, that the um, the situation with NC State was was unfortunate, you know, and I, I feel for those those players and, and the coaches. And so I'm not, uh, you know, not saying that uh, not saying that's not true. But I do think we have we did kind of get back on track as the CWS went on, and, and even though the finals were not the individual games were not particularly compelling, I think it was you know good storylines with a, a power like Mississippi State finally breaking through and winning a national title. All right. There was more going on around the country over the last week besides the College World Series finals. Uh, so let's get into a little bit of that here, Joe. Uh, start out in Fullerton, where Jason Dietrich was hired as the next ca- next coach of Cal State Fullerton, the sixth in their history in Division One. Somewhat of a surprise that it ends up being Dietrich in other ways, not a surprise. He was certainly one of the, the guys that, that you could point to coming into the search. 
Um, he spent the last two seasons as East Carolina's pitching coach. Prior to that, he was pitching coach at Oregon and prior to that at Fullerton and prior to that at Irvine. He is known as one of the, the top pitching coaches in the country. You know, at every stop, he's had premium talent. When he was at Fullerton in 2015, they led the nation in ERA. Um, he's done an awful lot o- over the years, and, and he does have some experience in the Fullerton program. He is not, however, um, a Fullerton alum. He is the first coach since, um, since Augie left for Texas to have not played for Augie Garrido. The next three, George Horton, Dave Serrano, and Rick Vanderhoek all did play for the Titans. Uh, Dietrich did not. He played at Pepperdine. Uh, he is somewhat a part of the family, however, by virtue of, of going and being an assistant coach, first under Vanderhoek at Fullerton, and then under Horton at Oregon. Uh, so he certainly understands what's going on out there, understands what it takes to win in the Big West. It's his first time as a head coach. This is a big spot. It's a it's a big spot, not just because it's Fullerton, but because Fullerton now has to climb back into the Big West, uh, into their, their spot atop the Big West, I should say. And they're fighting against some really good teams in, in trying to do so. Santa Barbara has been to Omaha. They've won the league. Uh, both of those things happening for the first time in like 30 plus years. Irvine under Ben Orloff looks to be renewed. They, uh, they of course, won the league this year. Lawn Beach under Eric Valenzuela looks to be renewed. And Cal Poly uh, remains one of the the best programs out there. And while they haven't climbed back into the tournament or won the Big West, they are always in the mix. They finished second in the Big West like three or four years in a row before this year. And, uh, you know, they're, they're always going to be there. And now Fullerton has to find a way to get back over those, those teams. Um, and so that, that's going to be Jason Dietrich's remit. And it's, it's an interesting hire. I'm interested to see how he goes about doing it. But I, I do think that bringing him back does mean that we're going to start see Fullerton uh, going back to pitching the way that, that they probably feel like they absolutely have to be doing and, and the way that we were we were so used to seeing them do. Yeah, it, it's not quite this simple. It never is. But you can draw you can start to draw a line of, of where Fullerton really started to struggle after Dietrich left. You know, he obviously first Oregon and ends up at East Carolina. But, you know, they, you know, he was at Fullerton until 2016 and, and the years since then for Fullerton, although he did get back to Omaha in 2017. But but after that, pretty sharp drop off for the Titans after Dietrich left. And again, a, a lot of things go into that. Uh, you know, I'm uh, not saying it was the only thing, but I think it was a factor, certainly. And you've heard a lot of the same things I have. Like I, I've heard a number of coaches ask me, some of some of whom don't have any like West coast ties, much less Fullerton ties, just kind of ask me like, man, are things really that bad at Fullerton? You know, um, like just unprompted asking about, about Fullerton, because that's how far things seem to, to tailspin uh, this year in particular. So I think it's, it's an interesting hire. I think it's a good hire. Like you said, I mean, it kind of threads the needle between, you know, in, in the job profile that, that uh, we, we wrote about this. One of the things that was, we mentioned was the fact that, Fullerton is very has a very proud baseball history, and they're very into 
Fullerton guys and the Fullerton family and basically all of the recent head coaches that Fullerton has had have a direct line back to Augie Garrido, who is really the father of, of Cal State Fullerton, the godfather of Cal State Fullerton baseball. And this is a little bit of a break from that. Some of that is by necessity, right? Because we get further and further away from the Augie Garrido era at Cal State Fullerton. It's just not going to be possible to have those ties anymore. But so some of that's by necessity, but, but this is a little bit of a link back to those you know, bygone eras while also being a little bit of a break from that. So I do think it is kind of a good needle thread there for Cal State Fullerton where there's probably some new ideas here, but also Dietrich is a guy who understands some of the complexities of Cal State Fullerton because I think there are some, you know, he's, I think he's going to have a good understanding of what you can and can't do at Cal State Fullerton. I think a lot of other people would look at Cal State Fullerton as being something that it isn't necessarily it is a very successful program historically. There are a lot of things going for it, but there are lots of a lot of things working against it. And for someone who hasn't been in that, it's one thing to kind of hear that. It's another thing to maybe experience it and get frustrated with it and not understand why things are a little bit different. And so Dietrich, I think, will have that kind of understanding. And that's why, you know, we talked about fit, you know, a coaching fit and in, into a job. I think this is one instance where fit ends up mattering a little bit because he does have an understanding of, of what's realistic there and the kinds of things that you need to do to be successful at a place like that. I'll be very interested to see, you know, just how this, this shapes up Fullerton. One of the things that Fullerton needs to do is just start recruiting better. Um, you know, UCSB, Cal Poly, uh, certainly probably Irvine to an extent, they're just, they've just been recruiting better and, you know, that's not going to stop necessarily anytime soon, you know, at least as long as those staffs, especially those head coaches remain there. Um, you know, that's, uh, that's just how it's going to be. Those, those schools are, you're going to have to go catch them. They're, they're probably not falling back to you. So, uh, it's, uh, it's an interesting time in Fulton baseball to say the least. And, you know, it, we'll, we'll, we'll see where it goes. The Big West overall, I feel like, has gotten a lot more interesting in the last year than it, than it had been. You know, you see Long Beach under Valenzuela take a step forward. You see Santa Barbara and Irvine continue doing what they've been doing. You, now you've got a new head coach at Fullerton. There's a new head coach at Hawaii, and it's Rich Hill, uh, who had a pretty good run at San Diego. You've got you know, Dave Serrano getting Northridge, uh, you know, into a, a better position than they've been in a long time. So I'm not here to say that the Big West is back to what you're, what they're used to it being or what it was in the early 2000s when Jared Weaver and Troy Tulowitzki and uh, were, were at Long Beach and, and Fullerton won the 04 national title. Like, I'm not, I'm not saying we're back to that. But what I am saying is that, that this can be a, a really compelling competitive conference again. And that's more than what I could say for the, the conference, you know, five, six years ago. And yeah, there was a stretch where four different teams went to Omaha in, in consecutive years. But uh, it, I, I think this could be a, uh, a more competitive version than, than what you saw even in that year where, or in that era when it was a lot of, well, okay, there's one like dominant team this year or, and, and maybe two. And I, I think now it, it could be a situation where, where the big West starts to, uh, to become deeper and 
uh, that would be great because it being a one and a half bid league is uh, I'm, I, I have not enjoyed the last few years of big West baseball as as this one and a half bid league situation. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and we, we really haven't, some of these things that we talk about with the big West showing improvement, we just really haven't had a chance to see, right. I mean, totally agree on the assessments that Valenzuela at Long Beach and, and, and Dave at Northridge have things going in the right direction, but then you combine that with, well, the 2020 season didn't finish. And, and, you know, I think that ultimately probably ends up hurting Long Beach more than Northridge, but then you combine that with, well, we're, you, you may or may not have a fall practice and then your spring practice might be a little bit limited and then, okay, you may or may not be able to play non-conference games, you know, so they, they really haven't, those programs in particular, which it, those things have also affected other Big West schools, they're not alone in that, but those two programs in particular stick out as like not really having had a fair shake at all lately. Through, And that's not even criticizing the administration. That's just the reality of the COVID situation. So um, I'm with you and I'll be excited in 2022 and beyond for there to be a little bit of normalcy in that and to really see the Big West start to build on that. And I think there's an opportunity that in 22, when you talk about you know, on the individual player level with Brooks Lee, who is a quality of player that, frankly, the Big West has not had a lot of lately. So that certainly helps. I mean, you're talking about in Brooks Lee, a potential top 10 pick in next year's draft. I don't have it in front of me when the last time a position player did that. I know Dylan Tate did that in 2015, but to have a position player like that, I mean, that you're, you're, having to go back some ways and it might be all the way back to, you know, the Longoria and Tulo years. The only one sooner I think would be Christian Cologne. Oh, you're right. Yeah. 2010 Christian Cologne. But that would be my guess as to how long it's been. We're talking 12 years by the time he gets drafted, you know, I mean, that's a long, it doesn't seem that long ago, but that is a long, long time ago. So especially in the lives of recruiting, you know, so um, I'm with you. I mean, I'm excited to see what's next to this league because it does feel like it's trending the right way, but of course, you know, COVID probably affected other than the Ivy League, I suppose, or, or the leagues that played just all conference games um, across the board. The, the Big West was one of the more affected conferences in terms of COVID stuff with restrictions and whatnot. So I'll be interested to see what we start to get in 2022 and if they can make good on some of the promise that we've seen early on. Well, we're talking about, you know, 22 there and Brooks Lee and getting a little bit excited about that. So Let's touch on what those folks are doing this summer. Um, The Cape Cod League started a couple weeks ago now. They got a late start, but they are going uh, after not playing last year. They're playing a mostly normal schedule this year. There's no all-star game. They they took away some some of the ancillary stuff, but the the main thing is the main thing, and the main thing is that they're playing. Uh, So the Cape is going. Uh, some intriguing results from there already, including Reggie Crawford, UConn's uh, very exciting two-way player who Jim Penders came on this podcast and talked about last fall about how he needed to get Reggie Crawford more innings. Well, he showed why on the Cape because he hit 101 from the left side, and he also can hit some absolute tanks uh, in the batter's box. So that was exciting. That, that was one of the things that caught my eye early on in the Cape. And then also this last weekend, uh, the collegiate national team got together. They're doing a weird thing this year because of the COVID situation, uh, but they weren't even able to play last year. So to get anything out of them, I suppose, is, uh, is good to see as well. But they are not playing international competition this year. They're playing what amounts to a series of scrimmages. 
um, between the stars and the stripes team. And then uh, they're, they're doing that as they barnstorm through Appalachian league uh, ballparks. So over the next couple weeks, you got, you have college national team action and because they are, you know, they have to play each other. It's a bigger roster this year, which I, in some ways is cool uh, because it, it gives you a chance to see the top players. Like the Cape is already good at doing this, at bringing the top players in the country together to play against each other. But now the national team is just distilling that even further. And they've got, you know, the, the absolute best of the best going against each other on a nightly basis i'll be interested to see how competitive these games are as we record this they have not played yet by the by the time you listen to it uh they will have started playing so i I am interested in in seeing how that how that all shakes out how scouts you know kind of go about evaluating games like that because one of the great things about the national team is when you put usa across someone's chest and say go play cuba like that means a lot to everyone on both sides and you're not going to get that kind of tension uh and it's also true when you play japan and it's also true when you play south korea and you have that usually for like 12 15 games a summer and now you're going to have to kind of just manufacture that and it probably won't be anywhere close to it so how does that change things and so there's a lot of interesting things about the collegiate national team this year uh, but unfortunately one of the interesting things is is the lack of international competition and the lack of the rivalries that that brings i think it speaks to how powerful just being a part of this usa baseball and having the, the usa across your chest how powerful a thing that is and i think if i were a player i would probably i would have an emotional pull to that they would they would pull me into the national team as well but it, I mean, it, it, it is kind of a, um, you know, I was a little bit worried coming, I don't know worry is the right word because if it's the best choice for the player, then it's not for me to say, but I, I wondered coming into the summer, if USA wouldn't get the same level of player, just because you're going to ride a bus around the Appalachian league, you know, to, to play a bunch of scrimmages, like, but again, you know, it is the USA thing and calling yourself a national team player is a, is a big deal. And, you know, scouts are going to show up at every one of these things. There were just as much scouting heat as there would normally be. So there are a lot of benefits to it. One of the other layers to this is that that plus some other factors have made the Cape kind of weird this year. There was a story I just read in the Cape Cod times today that there are 207 draft eligible players in the Cape this year. And some of that I assume is, lower division players who may or may, who who may or may not get drafted. I think there may be some of those every year, you know, so it's not 207, you know, stone cold locks to go in the top 10 rounds or whatever. It's not bad, but a lot of those guys are guys who are hoping to get drafted. And that's a little bit different. The later draft day has something to do with that. The COVID season where players have all this extra eligibility is part of that. So that's kind of an interesting wrinkle there. There's also the wrinkle on the Cape of, okay, there's 48 guys on the collegiate national team. You know, normally there's a collegiate national team camp. Some of those guys get cut. They go back to the Cape um, with 48 guys that are all never 48. Like they're, they're trying to get to like 26 man, I think usually. And they never, they they don't call 48 to to get there anymore. There was a time maybe that that was happening, but that time ended years ago. Yeah, so you've got 48 guys who are going to be doing this. And, like, those guys – and Tom Holiday, you know, who, who coaches Chatham on the Cape, you know, longtime college coach, 
you know, said in this Cape Todd time story, like those guys aren't coming back. And like, I, and he's probably right in a lot of cases. I'm sure there are some instances of guys. Who, Although he did benefit one year when Torkelson went back. <laughs> it's like the only guy from USA that like has ever gone back. Yeah. So like, unless, unless you're a player who just really loves your Cape town and Hey, I, I wouldn't blame you if you're in, you know, a lot of those places, but um, yeah, those guys probably aren't coming back. That's almost 50 players who would probably otherwise be playing on the Cape who just aren't going to come back. So it, it's just a really weird Cape year. There are a lot of things that go into that, but, uh, but I think it's, um, you know, last year, summer ball was, was extremely weird this year, a little less weird, but still pretty weird, I guess, in summation. Yeah. That 207 number of draft eligible players on the Cape sounds really big, but I would love to see it in relation to 2019, because here's the thing about that. Every junior college player is eligible for the draft. And it's not like junior college is the dominant source of players for the Cape, but there are always junior college players there. And then, like you mentioned, Joe, that there are always some older players there, often from New England-based universities, but not always. But there are always there are always rising seniors on the Cape, always. And so I would love to take them out, just know how many like true, like how many. Right, calling them a rising junior this year isn't isn't quite right, but who is in their first year of draft eligibility at a four year school? Because those are the the players that you don't typically see on the Cape, and you you do see those players anyway, but you don't see as many of them. I know there are guys up there trying to improve their draft stock. Like I I can go through the rosters and find them, uh, but it I I don't know quite how much there has been. Uh, versus a normal year and then I also don't know and this is a little unknowable I hope the coaches have a decent idea of it but it's a little unknowable from an outsider perspective well what's going to happen on July 15 when the draft has been over Um, when, when the draft ends you got picked didn't get picked whatever what are you doing now um, so it'll be interesting to see how, how the Cape develops over the course of the summer and the fact that they got such a late start this year, uh, but are still generally trying to play, you know, get the season over approximately when they usually do. I think it's running a little bit later this year. Uh, is that going to help keep some players up there a little bit longer? Because at least from a, uh, chronological point of view, because how many innings, how many games, you get is usually the determining factor before a, a coach is trying to call you back to, to college. Um, you know, so a, a lot to, a lot to unpack there, a lot to track uh, there as well. And it should be noted that, you know, those are, you know, where my focus often goes first uh, in terms of summer ball, but the Appalachian league uh, is now a summer league and the MLB draft league exists this year. It was created for this year. Uh, so those two things are underway, uh, and it'll be very interested. I'll be very interested to see how the draft league does in terms of draft talents. Um, it's going to be unfair to judge either the Appy League or the draft league what they could be, like how well they're living up to what their their stated goals are. It's going to be unfair to judge them on that this year because they were started so late in the process. It just takes a while to. Um, you know, recruiting summer ball players happens in like September and October for premium premium conference or premium leagues. 
those the Appy League and the Draft League were just being born then. So whatever they are this year, it doesn't necessarily mean that they'll be that way forever. But I'll be interested to see how they develop and evolve this year. Um, and then also, of course, leagues like the Northwoods, Coastal Plain, Florida, uh, Florida Collegiate, California Collegiate. They're they're all running around doing their thing as well. And so, uh, really good to have. We've been saying this all year long. It's just good to have all this stuff back after last year being as weird as it was in summer ball. Uh, having a more normal summer ball season is uh, is welcome. Yeah, it's, uh, totally agree. The funny thing is, like, it makes selfishly like it has made things less good personally out here because I got spoiled by the quality of player in the Coastal Plain League being so good last year relative to what it normally is. So those rosters are kind of back to normal uh, right now, which which is less than what they were last summer. So selfishly, like, there is that. But but I, I you know I have obviously I have the perspective enough to understand that hey, it's better that it's. It's better that it's this way, and the players are back to being splintered all over the place. And you still got Banana Bowl, which is uh, continuing right. to get national attention down that there. Is. The, the Savannah Bananas still making national headlines. Indeed. Uh, all right. So in the on that note, we're dropping back to our off-season podcasting schedule, which is to say that we're going from two per week back to one per week for the foreseeable future i i don't know if uh there will be a time in the off season um before say january <laughs> that we go back to two a week but we'll keep you up to date on that for now though we're we're dropping back to one a week on the baseball america college podcast um hopefully we can get back into our the other part of our off season routine which is having weekly guests I enjoy that. Joe enjoys that. I know you guys enjoy hearing from from the various guests we're able to bring on. So hopefully we're we're back to that relatively soon. It may take us a few weeks just between the draft coming up, uh, various travel for summer ball slash vacation for for Joe and me. But uh, within the next few weeks, I I think we'll be back to a totally typical offseason podcasting content which would be us talking once a week and bringing on a a guest from around the college baseball world so you can uh readjust to that i suppose uh hopefully you're you're subscribed to the baseball america podcast if you're not you can do so on your favorite podcasting apps apple podcast stitcher spotify wherever you get your podcasts please subscribe and if you have someone you would like us to feature as a guest at some point this off season, whether that's this summer or into the fall, please let us know. You can drop us a review or, uh, and if you do drop us a review, please, uh, please put five stars on that as well. Uh, hopefully you enjoy it. Uh, and if, uh, if you don't want to drop a review, you can, you can hit us up on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. Uh, we obviously have some ideas for, for podcast guests, but we, we love to hear, uh, from you guys about who you want to hear. And that honestly has led to us bringing certain people on over the last year. So uh, please, please let us know. And we really want to thank you all for continuing to listen throughout this, uh, this unusual 2021 college baseball season. We actually just got numbers in, um, you know, from the, the month of June and 
it was uh it was a very good month for the baseball america podcast and uh, so we really appreciate everyone uh taking the time to listen to download if you're telling a friend we we love that as well that that is uh, a, a great way to uh to support us as well because that kind of stuff i mean i i know when i hear from people like that they really like podcasts i'm much more likely to to try and listen to it than if I, I just go online and I read an article about the best podcast I should be listening to today. So I know I appreciate it. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we see you out there and, and Joe, I'm sure you have some words of appreciation that I'm forcing you to say to the listeners right now. Yeah, we, uh, I will, I will say, <laughs> I, I, I will say that, um, when someone there's, there's maybe it's because like, this is a very, and people have probably heard podcasters and and people say things like this, but it's a very intimate medium, right? Like we're talking directly to you, um, very close to your face, you know, if you've got headphones on. So it is an intimate, intimate medium. And so I think maybe in part because of that, when people come up and, and say that they enjoy the podcast and, and, you know, we actually got a decent amount of that in Omaha from, from just, um, you know, some, some regular folks, for lack of a better way of putting it, but also from some, uh, you know, some friends in high places, shall, shall we say, you know, that, that listen to the podcast and humble brag. I know I'm not going to name drop. I'm just, I'm not, I'm just not going to do it. And I won't, I will not I, I <laughs> keep, I will keep those sources private, but you know, but it, it, it means more than if someone kind of just comes up. I mean, obviously if someone just comes up and says, Hey, I, I appreciate, I enjoy the work you guys do. Like most of the time I, I trust that they actually mean that, but you never know. But if they come up and say, Hey, I really like the podcast. I really like X or Y about it. Um, that's really, really cool. And I enjoy that more than somebody who just says, Hey, I like what you wrote about X or Y. And I think some of that is because it is so intimate because in essence, I think when people say they like the podcast, what they're telling us is that they like um, us and what we're doing and our rapport and the choices we make. Um, because you can like something that you or I write, a reader can like something that you or I write, and they might just like that team or thought we did like a neat thing with the concept or something like that, um, or it was just what they were looking for. But with a the podcast, they really are kind of saying like, I enjoy listening to you. I enjoy the topics you're talking about. I enjoy the choices you make. I think you guys have you know, a good rapport. Those, those are the kinds of things they're really saying when they like the podcast. And so I, I tend to really appreciate that more now that being said i do welcome you saying nice things about my writing as well but i do kind of appreciate it a little bit more when it's when it's a podcast compliment because i not only do we put a lot of work in trying to to make this good um, but i think it also says when someone says they like it i think it says a little bit more than just saying they like something that we've that we've written it, uh, it, it has been fun doing you know i know we talked about this um when the I don't know when we talked about it at some point during the pandemic, we, we talked about how it just been like a really nice outlet to keep like talking about college baseball and, and talking about the baseball part of it as much as we could and not just the various other things that were going on. And that was really true then. And it's also just been really nice to, to this year be able to uh, you know, get into it on a weekly or biweekly week twice weekly there it is i know words uh twice weekly basis about college baseball and and the various goings on around it and it, it's been great to to see that the people have been interested in in what we're doing because uh you know like joe said it's uh it, it's a more intimate me- medium than me writing words about mississippi state and maybe i'm like joe like i want to hear that i wrote 
<laughs> that you enjoyed what I wrote. Um, maybe even more that I want to hear that you like the podcast, but it's only, it's only barely uh, on that. Like it's uh, be, because it, it does mean so much that, that you're putting up with us talking for like 90 minutes. <laughs> these are not short podcasts. So if you're, if you're listening to these, you, you're usually a pretty committed baseball fan. And so I really appreciate hearing that uh, just like Joe does. So thank you to everyone who, who stuck with us throughout the 2021 season. And if this happens to be the first time you're finding us, uh, well, hopefully we'll uh, be able to entertain you into the off season and then beyond. So with that, we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up for today. We'll be back here next week with another edition of the baseball America college podcast, probably looking ahead to the draft if I had to guess, um, which is uh, coming up. That's on July 11th is, is the, uh, is the start of the draft. So it's coming fast now with the season complete, make sure you subscribe to the podcast and you'll get that right into your phone. You can do so on Apple podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. Thank you all for listening to this edition of the Baseball America College podcast, which, like every edition, was presented by Rapsodo. For Joe, I'm Teddy. We'll talk to you next time.